In 2013, the left went nuts over a rodeo clown. The rodeo clown was performing at the Missouri State Fair. He had the awful temerity to wear a mask of then-President Obama. We're going to stomp Obama now, an announcer said. Hey, I know I'm a clown, the rodeo clown replied. He's just running around acting like one. Doesn't know he is one. The media quoted a bystander who compared the act to a KKK rally. The lieutenant governor of the state condemned the act, as did one of the senators. The rodeo clown was fired, even though he dressed up as other presidents in the past and done the exact same routine. Fast forward four years. On Tuesday, TMZ posted photos of comedian Kathy Griffin, who has helped host CNN's New Year's Eve coverage for a decade, holding a mock-up of President's severed head covered in blood. Griffin has a long record of anti-Trump sentiment, of course. In February, she told MSNBC's Chris Matthews, quote, I'm a big resistor, and I don't believe in compromise with this president. I also think he's crazy. I think he's mentally ill. He's also an idiot. But this photo shoot crossed a rather obvious line. It celebrated Trump's prospective murder. Imagine if anyone on the right had done something similar with Obama. The outcry would have been deafening. Yet, the same people who ask for trigger warnings for material that might offend anyone, the same people who believe there's a rape culture that pervades America, the same people who say President Trump has incentivized a culture of political violence across the land, many of them are silent about Griffin's antics. Why? Because political violence is no longer taboo in the U.S. It's just another tactic to utilize when useful and, when useful and denigrate when others engaged in it. That sentiment expresses itself on both sides of the political aisle. When Montana House candidate Greg Gianforte allegedly body-slammed a reporter, prominent conservatives, including talk show host Laura Ingram, demeaned his victim as a wuss and championed Gianforte as a sort of stalwart man's man. When leftists attacked Trump rallies during the 2016 election cycle, the media attempted to paint them as the defenders of the common good against Trump himself. The overused phrase cycle of violence is often used by the press to refer to situations in which an aggressor acts violently and somebody defends him. But... We've entered an actual cycle in political violent rhetoric, whereby the vileness of the left provokes a direct response from the right and vice versa, and it's getting worse. If you spend all day proclaiming that you're in a civil war with other Americans, that you're part of a resistance, it's only a matter of time until you become willing to look the other way at violence itself. If Americans aren't your brothers and sisters, if we disagree, then they will quickly become your enemies. Kathy Griffin may think it's hilarious to hold up a bloody head of the President of the United States, but she's tearing away at the social fabric far more than President Trump is, and those who backed her play are helping provoke their enemies to respond in kind. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. So, Donald Trump did a very, very, very good thing, and we are very happy about that today. So we'll be discussing all aspects of the Paris Accord, what Trump did, what he said. He gave what I thought was the best speech of his presidency thus far. Uh, really, really good speech that he gave about the Paris Accords yesterday. Before we get to that, though, I want to say thank you to our sponsors over at Upside.com. So this is the best new way to travel. If you are interested in traveling for cheap, if you are interested in receiving back hundreds of dollars in gift cards from Amazon.com with every purchase. You go to Upside.com and use a radio listener promo, Ben. Here's the way they do it. They bundle your flight and your hotel together, and because they are specifically designed for business travelers, so they're really designed for person traveling alone, they get the cheapest prices available. Bundling saves money, especially on business travel, so Upside actually gives you back free Amazon gift cards. If you're a frequent business traveler, your company saves a bunch of money on the price, and you personally get thousands a year just for buying your air and hotel together at Upside.com, and you still get all your miles. It's foolish not to check it out. Upside.com, if you're shopping for business or personal travel, it takes three minutes to see how much you can save by buying your flights and hotels together for one 
low price. And right now, if you use the code Ben, if you use my name Ben, you're guaranteed to get at least a $200 Amazon gift card on your very first trip. My name Ben gets you a $200 Amazon gift card on your very first trip. Again, you save big and you get the big gift card kicked back to you every single trip. Upside.com, terrific service. Minimum purchase is required. See the site for complete details. And remember, use that promo code Ben so you get the $200 in gift cards. Pretty hefty gift right there. Get $200 in gift cards with minimum purchase, uh, and also that lets them know that we sent you so they continue to uh, sponsor the program. We continue to bring it to you. Okay, so President Trump, in my absence, I leave for two days, and uh, many a thing has happened, but the big thing that happened is a very good thing, and that is President Trump came out and he rejected the Paris Accord. So for people who don't know what the Paris Accord is, I think that it's important to spell what this is out so people understand. First of all, it was basically... it. it, it the, basically, the accord was President Obama, in the very last days of his administration, he went to Paris and he met with all of these nations, and they all agreed to voluntarily submit these non-binding resolutions on how they were going to cut their carbon emissions. That's basically what it was. Now, there are a couple problems here. Number one, non-binding. Number two, none of the resolutions was rejected. And there was nobody there who said, well, you know, Congo, you, you, did, a, you did a terrible job here. This is, you know, the, whatever country it is. France, you're not recommending that you cut enough. China, you're not recommending that you cut enough. So we reject your resolution. We want you to bring a new resolution to the table. And here's an enforcement mechanism. Basically, it was like you and a group of your friends pledge that you're going to lose weight. And you get to pick your own target. So you have a friend who comes in and says, I want to lose one pound over the next six months. And everyone goes, yay! And your friend really needs to lose 50 pounds. Not a useful thing. Also, no enforcement mechanism. So if they don't lose the one pound, nobody says to them, that was kind of bad. You said you were going to lose a pound and you didn't. So it was basically just a bunch of people slapping each other on the back, pretending they were doing something for the world when actually they weren't doing anything for the world. Trump pulls out of the accord because what he says is it's just a way for people to generate anti-U.S. headlines. In other words, we uh, tr Obama committed to a bunch of resolutions about lowering lowering our carbon emissions that we were never going to meet, knowing that his successor would then have to eat it. Right? That if we didn't meet those resolutions, then his successor, the United States, would then be labeled as backing off its commitments, being ripped up and down. He was making a promise that somebody else's body was going to have to cash. And because of that, Trump says, look, this whole agreement is a joke and we're pulling out. So Trump speaks yesterday and he gives a very good speech. This is why he was elected. You know, it, it was for stuff like this. Here he was explaining what exactly it would do to the United States to abide by the actual resolutions that we had adopted with regard to the Paris Accord. Compliance with the terms of the Paris Accord and the onerous energy restrictions that is placed on the United States could cost America as much as 2.7 million lost jobs by 2025, according to the National Economic Research Associates. This includes 440,000 fewer manufacturing jobs, not what we need. Believe me, this is not what we need, including automobile jobs, and the further decimation of vital American industries on which countless communities rely. They rely for so much, and we would be giving them so little. According to the same study, by 2040, compliance with the commitments put into place by the previous administration would cut production for the following sectors. Paper, down 12%. Cement, 
down 23%. Iron and steel, down 38%. Coal, and I happen to love the coal miners, down 86%. Natural gas down 31%. Okay, so the reason that this is good, what he's doing right here, is he's spelling out a trade-off that Obama refused to acknowledge actually occurs. And that trade-off is, if you place heavy regulations on American industries, jobs are lost. If you place heavy regulations on American carbon emissions, then there's going to be an economic cost to that. And people on the right and the left pretend that this is not the case. Trump, you'll see later, actually pretends the opposite is the case. He says, well, we can have all the environmentalism we want, and we can also have as much economic growth as we want. Not super true, but... His balance is closer to the correct balance than Obama's balance was close to the correct balance. So he spells out the cost to Americans, and he's not going to lose a single vote in 2018 or 2020 based on this. There are a lot of people who feel like these regulations, and I've spoken in Pennsylvania recently. You talk to manufacturers in Pennsylvania, they are afraid the regulations are going to destroy their industry, and they are right. He continues along these lines, and he points out that there would be a lot of loss in the economy if you continue along the lines of these Paris Accords. The cost to the economy at this time would be close to $3 trillion in lost GDP and 6.5 million industrial jobs, while households would have $7,000 less income and, in many cases, much worse than that. Okay, and this is again true. What he's saying is that basically the cost of energy production go up dramatically when you put heavy regulations on energy production, and that means that people are going to have less money to spend on other things. Again, true. He continues along these lines, and this is where when Trump said America first, there are people who were saying, okay, if you were talking about this kind of stuff, then I'm with him. Okay, and when he says America first, what he, what he should be meaning is that we can't allow other countries to go on doing exactly what they want with their industries and then unilaterally cut our own economy to no net effect. He picks on China here, and he's right to pick on China. China's not going to make any serious emissions cuts. All of the emissions cuts that China has talked about under the Paris Accord are things that they are already doing. They're things that are already occurring. So, for example, in the United States, in the last couple of years, we've cut our carbon emissions by 3%. That's not because of regulations. That's because natural gas has, has, has re replaced, in many cases, coal production, and natural gas gives off less emissions than coal production. It's because our cars are getting more efficient. In other words, free markets make more green energy than do government mandates. Government mandates just make people poorer. But China you know, is, is going to be able to do what they want, and we're supposed to regulate ourselves to no effect. Here's Trump saying that. For example, under the agreement, China will be able to increase these emissions by a staggering number of years, 13. They can do whatever they want for 13 years, not us. India makes its participation contingent on receiving billions and billions and billions of dollars in foreign aid from developed countries. There are many other examples, but the bottom line is that the Paris Accord is very unfair at the highest level to the United States. I don't think there are a lot of Americans who are going to disagree with that, and he is correct that the reason the rest of the world is so intent on the United States picking up the burden is because they would like to see the United States taken down a peg on the global economic level. He points that out, and again, this is exactly correct from President Trump. The rest of the world applauded when we signed the Paris Agreement. They went wild. They were so happy. For the simple reason 
that it put our country, the United States of America, which we all love, at a very, very big economic disadvantage. A cynic would say the obvious reason for economic competitors and their wish to see us remain in the agreement is so that we continue to suffer this self-inflicted major economic wound. Stop it. But that's exactly right. Finally, the, 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 the final point that he makes that's really an important one is that even if we were to comply by all of the resolutions that have been undertaken in the Paris Accord, again, non-binding resolutions undertaken in the Paris Accord, it wouldn't really make much of a difference over the course of the century. So here he is explaining, using data from MIT, that if people just did what they were talking about under the Paris Accord, it wouldn't actually do anything, but it would hurt the economy pretty badly. Even if the Paris Agreement were implemented in full, with total compliance from all nations, it is estimated it would only produce a two-tenths of one degree. Think of that. This much. Celsius reduction in global temperature by the year 2100. Tiny, tiny amount. In fact, 14 days of carbon emissions from China alone would wipe out the gains from America, and this is incredible statistic, would totally wipe out the gains from America's expected reductions in the year 2030. After we have had to spend billions and billions of dollars, lost jobs, closed factories, and suffered Exactly right. And this is Trump doing the right thing. He drops a line in here that I think really sums up what his presidency should be about, what, what he's always said it was about. He said, I was elected to represent the citizens of Pittsburgh, not Paris. And that is totally fair. That is a smart political line. Now, the left has absolutely lost its mind over this. And I want to talk in one second about that. But first, I want to talk about all of the reasons why what Trump did was right. But before I even get to that, first I want to say thank you to our sponsors over at Indochino. So the nicest suit that I currently own is a suit from Indochino. It's a tailored suit. It's uh, it's kind of a blue-gray suit, really beautiful suit. Uh, and it's tailored to me. The way that it works, you go over to Indochino.com, and they ask for all sorts of measurements on. You can measure it yourself. You can go over to one of their stores. Indochino has one in Beverly Hills uh, that I went to, and they suit you up. I mean, they, they you, you pick your fabric, you pick the weave, you pick the, the, um, the lining, you pick all, all the various options. Do you want cuffs on your on your pants? Do you not want cuffs? Do you want pleats? I mean, basically all the options, and it's customized just for you. People, men look better in tailored suits. Just a fact. There's a reason Bond only wears tailored suits. Indochino makes that happen for you. Right now, if you go to Indochino, and you, I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, and use promo code Shapiro, you can get any premium Indochino suit for just 379 bucks. So that's like an off-the-rack price suit, but it's actually tailored to you. It's tailored to you, so it fits you absolutely perfectly. And by the way, if they tailor it wrong, you just bring it back in, and they will fix it for you at their shop, uh, or you can send it back to them for fixes. So Indochino.com. Right now, my listeners get any of those in, in premium Indochino suits for just 379 bucks at Indochino.com. When you enter Shapiro at checkout, that also lets them know that we sent you, which is, which is great for us. 50% off the regular price for made-to-measure premium suits. And again, shipping is free. It fits you better than anything you're going to get off the rack ever would because it is made just for you. I mean, they do things that are really sophisticated with the suit. Like when they were fitting it to me, uh, they actually said, okay, we're going to move the shoulders forward. We're going to release the, we're going to release the bicep because you're just so massive in the bicep. And it was, uh, and it was 
and, and the suit really looks good. I mean, it's it, they sent it to me in a in a beautiful box. I take it out. If it's perfectly, it's great. Inzochino.com, promo code Shapiro. Okay, so a few more notes about the Paris Accord, and then I want to get to the left's insane reaction to this, because it's totally over the top. So, number one, the Accord was actually a treaty, but Obama never treated it that way. So, if Obama really thought this was super-duper-duper important, super-duper important, then what he should have done is signed the Paris Accords with some pretty significant American restrictions on carbon emissions, and then submitted it to the Senate and used his bully pulpit to get it approved. Remember, Treaties under the U.S. Constitution must be approved by two-thirds of the Senate. So, if he thinks it's that important, if the world is at stake, if we're all going to die, if it's going to be the day after tomorrow and Dennis Quaid's going to be hiding in the subway station while the waves pour through New York City, then you would think you might be able to get two-thirds of senators to vote for this thing. Obama couldn't even do that when he had 60 senators from the Democratic Party there. So the idea that, that this is ever going to be a political winner for Democrats is really stupid. Also, if you're going to do a treaty, do a treaty. Second, there are some significant legal implementation problems with the Paris Accord. So Donald McGahn is the White House counsel. He pointed out that theoretically you could have a court that would strike down the EPA's proposals to kill some of these anti-coal regulations on the basis of the Paris Accords. Now, legally, should they be able to do that? No. The left says the courts wouldn't do that. Of course, the left also said 15, 20 years ago that the courts wouldn't impose gay marriage from above, and then they did that. So whenever the left says the courts will not do this, what they really mean is the courts won't do this tomorrow, but in the next six months, maybe. Third, this would have had no impact, okay, like none. Okay, the, 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 the statistic that Trump cites there where he says the global climate would be lowered by a grand total of 0.2 degrees Celsius by 2100 if we kept by the Paris Accord, that is 100% true. MIT is saying, no, 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 that, that's, that's only if people stopped abiding by their obligations in 2030. Right, but the Paris Accord only runs through 2030. So what is he supposed to assume, that we're going to ratchet it up after 2030? He can't make assumptions about facts not in evidence. Fourth, it lets other countries free ride. Oren Cass points out a commentary magazine today. China, committed to begin reducing emissions by 2030, roughly when its economic development would have caused this to happen anyway. India made no emissions commitment, pledging only to make progress on efficiency at half the rate it had progressed in recent years. Pakistan outdid the rest, submitting a single page that offered to, quote, reduce its emissions after reaching peak levels to the extent possible. This is a definition of the word peak, not a commitment. An April report by Transport Environment found only three European countries pursuing policies in line with their Paris commitments, and one of these, Germany, has now seen two straight years of emissions increases. The Philippines has outright renounced its commitment. A study published by the American Geophysical Union warns that India's planned coal plant construction is incompatible with its own targets. And all of this is fine. The only people who get ripped are the United States because, of course, we're the most powerful. We're also supposed to fund like one-third of the entire commitment for all of the, for all of the uh, Paris Accord redistribution. We're supposed to put like $3 billion in. Obama and the left have been claiming for years that this is going to create jobs. No evidence it's going to create jobs. Paris Accord was basically meaningless. Now, that said, it is important to point out that you know, the, the Trump pulling out of it doesn't actually materially change much because the Paris Accords weren't going to be implemented in any case. They're going to have the same shelf life as the Kyoto Protocol adopted by the Clinton administration in 1997, never passed by, never ratified by the Senate, and basically DOA. So it's a big symbolic move. But symbolism matters when it comes to this stuff. And that's, it's the symbolism the left is going nuts over. So the left has completely lost its mind. And it's really funny stuff. So we're going to discuss all that. But for that, you're going to have to go over to dailywire.com right now and become a subscriber. For $8 a month, you can subscribe at dailywire.com. You can be part of the mailbag, which we are doing today, and it will be spectacular. We'll take live questions. You can get all of your life's questions answered. Uh, you can see Andrew Clavin's show live. Uh, you can be part of Clavin's mailbag as well. We have lots of other goodies coming. And right now, if you become an annual subscriber, even if you're a regular subscriber, if you buy an annual subscription, if you upgrade and become an annual subscriber, you get a free signed copy 
a brand new book by me and my dad called Say It So, Papa, Dad, Me, and the 2005 White Sox Champion Season. Uh, it's all about the it's all about fathers and sons in baseball. Uh, I, I think it's a really fun, interesting, uh, and kind of heartwarming book. It's great for Father's Day, perfect Father's Day gift. They're in printing right now, so if you've already ordered, just wait a few days. Uh, we're in the process of, of getting all of those signed for you. Uh, I will sign it for you. You get a free autographed copy when you come to annual subscribers. So go over to dailywire.com right now and check it out. Uh, we appreciate it. If you just want to listen later, go to iTunes or SoundCloud, become a subscriber, uh, and then make sure that you leave us a review over at iTunes because uh, we know that we we know that apparently it affects iTunes rankings for some odd reason. Um, but in any case, make sure that you subscribe. We appreciate your listenership. We are the largest conservative podcast in the nation. So, even if you believe that global warming is a problem, and I happen to believe that the world is warming, I don't know to what extent the world is warming, because no one knows to what extent the world is warming. There's a range of options that have been provided, ranging from 2 or 3 degrees Fahrenheit over the course of the next century to 7 or 8 degrees Fahrenheit over the course of the next century. The average that that the IPCC put forward was 7 degrees over the next century, raising water levels something like 6 feet total. Even if that were to happen, that's not the end of the world. Water levels have changed over time. So then you have to say, okay, what is the best way to deal with that? Is the best way to deal with that with these global carbon regulations that may not even have an impact enough to actually stop that? Or should we be spending the money to shore up cities? Should we be spending that money to to allow private industry to develop new products? Lots of reasonable reasons to think the Paris Accords are stupid. And even if you're an advocate of harsh regulation on climate change, the Paris Accords don't actually accomplish anything because, again, they are non-binding voluntary commitments that don't mean anything, and none of those commitments can be rejected by the international community. Nevertheless, the left feels like it has an issue here, even though they don't, and so they're all losing their mind. Jerry Brown, who is literally at this point an old man yelling at the moon, uh, the governor of our stupid state of California, uh, here he is on CNN saying that everyone is going to die. People are going to die. Well, the reaction is uh, this is a crazy decision. It's against the facts. It's against science. It's against reality itself. Uh, We know we have to decarbonize our future. If we don't, it's a horror. People are going to die. Habitat will be destroyed. Seas will rise. Insects will spread in areas they've never been before. This is not a game. It's not politics to talk to your base. It's humanity and whether it makes it through the 21st century. So California will stay the course. We're already uh, embarked upon a very aggressive and uh, and imaginative program to reduce our own uh, global uh, greenhouse greenhouse gases. And we're going to join with others. I'm going to China. Uh, I'm going to meet with high officials there. We'll have a China uh, California plan. Uh, we are going to uh, meet with people representing uh, a billion people, 30% of the world's economy. This is our under two uh, coalition. Brown thinks he's going to win primaries. Jerry Brown actually wants to run for president, this crazy old loon. Uh, and even though he's destroying the state of California, they're talking about passing single payer here in the state of California, which will only drive out half the business in the state of California by doubling the budget immediately and forcing a doubling of the tax. But there's Jerry Brown. The biblical plagues will be upon us. The frogs will emerge from the rivers. They will sit in your ovens. The locusts will descend from the skies. The hail will kill all the cattle, all of them. There will be no cows left. But we in California are going to solve all that because I'm going to China, which is very far away, and where the people are funny looking. And then I'm going to do lots of things. Where am I? Why do I? What is? Jerry Brown, governor of California. Uh, 
<laughs> We've been living with him for literally decades at this point. Last time he was governor before, this was before I was born. Uh, really, he was governor from 76 to 80. I was born in 84. Uh, but Governor Brown says people will die because of climate change again. Going to need some evidence for that. And also, if you continue to cripple the, the state of California's economy, uh, then people are going to move out. Yes, even the people over in Silicon Valley. Uh, Fareed Zachariah does the same thing, except he says America is, we've resigned as leaders of the free world, as though leadership of the free world means that we have to, like, kill all the coal miners or something. This will be the day that the United States resigned as the leader of the free world. Uh, it's, it's nothing short of that. The, the, irres the irresponsibility of this act is breathtaking because the Paris Climate Accords are actually extraordinarily flexible. They do not dilute American sovereignty. They allow every country to make its own plans. Uh, that's why countries that have jealously guarded their sovereignty, like China, like India, like Russia, have all signed on. There are 194 other countries that have signed on to this. Okay, I love this. I love that we, we've resigned our leadership of the free world because we refuse to join a club that means nothing. Right, a club where everybody sits around going, pat on the back, man. You really, you said you were going to close a coal plant in like 30 years when that coal plant was already going to be defunct. Yeah, just well on, good on you, man. Just you, you, you really handled that. Okay, American leadership in the world, it turns out, is a little bit more than everybody. If you could just put in this little suggestion box, you're volunteering suggestions for carbon emissions. Meanwhile, we're going to destroy our economy. That's just, it's just silly. The, the, what's funny about the left is they're saying two separate things. They're saying, the Paris Accords are super important, super vital, super necessary. And then at the same exact time, they're saying they don't actually do that much. Like they don't do it. So why is he withdrawing? Because they're not doing it. Okay, can't have it both ways. Either they're important and they do stuff or they're not important and they don't do stuff. The truth is the latter. They're not important and they don't do stuff, which is why Trump is right to pull out of them. Trevor Noah, the, the second least funny person on earth uh, after Amy Schumer, uh, he's in a tie with Lena Dunham. Kathy Griffin made a quantum leap this week. So she may have actually leapt to the top of the pile. But Trevor Noah is always in the mix. Uh, here he is being uh, with his with his um, South African in South African accent, uh, talking about uh, talking about Donald Trump with, with the in the tones of foreign sophistication. You know, I don't know what's worse: the fact that Donald Trump may have doomed the planets, or the fact that he announced it like it's an episode of The Bachelorettes. <laughs> Earth, we had a great time in the hot tub, <laughs> but I gotta give a rose. To Cole, my black beauty, I choose you. It's official, people. Donald Trump has pulled the United States out of the biggest climate agreement the world has ever seen. And we all joke about him destroying the world, but this could be it. And can I just say, telling nature to go f itself while standing in a garden is a pretty gangster move. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> like, the only way that could have been more messed up is if he did it with a polar bear standing in the background. Yeah, although I'm sure Eric would have shown up and shot the polar bear. Father, look what I brought you. Do you love me now? How is this a show? How is he like on TV? I don't know who the writers are. Did John, did John Stewart leave with all the writers? Did they all just go away when, when they left it to Trevor Noah? Okay, again, this whole we're all going to die because of a meaningless agreement that does absolutely nothing and requires nothing of anyone is just the stupidest thing in the world. But this sort of hysteria is is... It's become stock and trade for the left, which is why no one takes them seriously anymore. Like, if they would just say, listen, the agreement didn't do a lot of things, but it was a step in the right direction, and it's a mistake for Trump to do this. It's something that we're going to have to push back against. If you elect us, then we will start making these commitments again, and we'll try to push for something that is a little bit more... We'll try to push for something that's a little bit more binding. We want something a little bit stricter than this. That's a reasonable critique, okay? These are not reasonable critiques. Here's the, 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 the Huffington Post headline, okay? 
Trump to planet, drop dead, and then the planet on fire, on fire. Again, MIT estimates that if all the commitments under the current agreement, not future agreements, the current agreement were kept, the temperature would change, temperature would change by 2100 by 0.2 degrees Celsius. <laughs> that's not the planet on fire, gang. That's you barely having a temperature. Okay, that's you have, that's you like 99.5. It's not even like technically you having a temperature. So the, the whole thing is just ridiculous. But the left is over its skis, of course. And what I want to point out here is that what Trump did here, people keep saying that Trump has a really hard job. Trump, Trump's having a hard time. He had a really hard job. It's very tough for him. No, he doesn't. What he did yesterday was actually very simple, and it got everyone on board. Like, everyone is on board. Here's Mike Lee. Mike Lee's been Trump skeptical from the beginning. He's a Utah senator, one of the few honest men left in the, the United States Senate. And here he says Trump did the exact right thing. Uh, the the health care thing, the tax thing, I was talking to Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary. He's getting a little fidgety about Congress and moving on any of this stuff. Are you? No, I, I'm convinced that we're going to pass health care reform and tax reform this year. We've got to repeal Obamacare. We've run it we for don't? seven years. If we don't, it's going to be very bad because we've run on this. The president ran on this. People in the House and the Senate campaigned on this for seven years. We have to repeal it and we've got to move forward and deliver relief to the American people who are suffering under the yoke of this incredible burden thrust upon them by the Affordable Care Act. How do you think President Trump is doing? I think he's doing well, and I think what he did today showed real leadership. I think it showed courage, and I commend him for doing this. I commend him also. The point is, it's not hard to get conservatives on board with you by doing things that drive the left up a wall. So there are a lot of conservatives out there who are happy with Trump because he quote-unquote drives the left up a wall. Right, but driving the left up a wall by doing something dumb and driving the left up the wall by doing something smart are not the same thing. He did something smart, he drove the left up a wall, and he unified all of the conservatives. Plus, he made an outreach play to all the people working in the industries, as he likes to say, all across the fruited plain. That's smart politics. This is stuff Trump is capable of doing. And one of the things that I think that this is important to point out here, Dennis Prager had a piece earlier this week in National Review, which I thought, I love Dennis, but I thought it was a really bad piece. And the piece basically said that never Trumpers are still, they don't get it. They don't get it. It's all, he's still, he's still going on about never Trumpers. Okay. As somebody who didn't vote for Trump or Hillary Clinton, let me point something out. Never Trump no longer exists. Never Trump was, I'm not voting for Trump because he didn't earn my vote. But Never Trump doesn't exist anymore. He's the president now. He does good things. He does bad things. I've spent this entire show talking up how good it is what Trump just did with the Paris Climate Accords. Does that seem like me being hypercritical of Trump? Does it seem like me sitting here wishing for him to fail? No, I'm wishing for him to succeed, just like the vast majority of people who didn't vote for either of these two candidates. And the reason that's important is because if Trump does the right things, we can all unify. The point is, if we don't hold him to account, then he's not going to do the right things. And if he does the right things, we are more than happy to praise him. We're overjoyed to praise him because we'd like to see him do all of the right things. The problem right now is not some never-Trump base that's undercutting him, the stab-in-the-back theory. The problem is that when Trump makes a mistake, it's Trump making the mistake, and then people cheering him on because they wish to portray all of his mistakes as grand and good things. How about this? How about we treat him like any other human being? When he does good things, they're good. When he does bad things, they're bad. It's not never-Trump or always-Trump. It's sometimes-Trump. Just like it's sometimes Shapiro. Just like it's sometimes you, right? Sometimes you do good stuff. Sometimes you do bad stuff. And you shouldn't be praised when you do bad stuff. And you shouldn't be and you shouldn't be booed when you do good stuff. It's that simple. Okay, time for some stuff I like, stuff I hate, and then we'll get to some mailbag. Uh, but first, but first, uh, I want to say thank you to our sponsors over at Quip. So uh, I have been using an electric toothbrush 
for years because my dentist told me that it was necessary. Um, but I was never a fan of the electric toothbrush that I had until I got Quip. Quip is the new company that's refreshing the way people brush their teeth. It's an electric toothbrush. It packs premium vibration and timer features into an ultra-slim design. So one of the cool things about it is it actually tells you how long you're supposed to spend on each quadrant of your mouth. Because if you're like me, then your tendency is to take the toothbrush go around like seven times in your mouth, spit, and then leave, and because you just want it to be fast. This tells you how long you actually need to clean your teeth so that you are totally clean and good. It, it's packed into an ultra-slim design that is half the cost of bulkier brushes. It's easier to travel with, so I don't even travel with my electric toothbrush because it's so bulky. I have to have the charger and everything. That's not the deal with Quip. You can even subscribe right now to receive new brush heads on a dentist-recommended three-month plan for just five bucks, including free shipping, which is great because one of the things that, if you've ever had an electric toothbrush, you forget when you last put the brush on, and then it gets old and doesn't work as well, but you don't remember when you did it, so it's been two years and you've never replaced the brush head. That's why it's great to have Quip, because Quip ensures that you're getting a new toothbrush, a new brush for the top of the toothbrush every three months. It's backed by the leading dentists. It was named as one of Time Magazine's best inventions of 2016. Right now, you can get Quip for just $25. You go to getquip.com slash Shapiro, getquip.com slash Shapiro. It's getquip.com slash Shapiro. You get your first refill pack free when you buy a Quip electric toothbrush. So you get that first refill pack absolutely free. So that takes you like six months because you have the original toothbrush and the refill. Pretty awesome. First refill back pre at quip, getquip.com slash Shapiro. Again, that's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com slash Shapiro. Keep your teeth clean. Also, my wife's a doctor, and she says that if you don't clean your teeth, you're going to die of a heart attack or something. So uh, all I would suggest is that you keep your teeth clean because plaque and, art and, and your arteries and such. Okay, so time for some things I like and then some things that I hate, and we'll do a little mailbag. So things I like. Last night, uh, my wife and I had not been out to see a movie in months because we have small children, which destroys your life. And they're wonderful, but you don't get to see movies. So last night, my parents babysat the kids, and we went and we saw Wonder Woman. And it's really, really good. It's a really good movie. It is not for all the people who are worried that it's going to be kind of sucker-punched, over-the-top feminist stuff. It really is not. It's not. Wonder Woman is a feminist character, but she's not a feminist character in the sense like, I have to be, I have to be the same as men, right? She's, she's awesome, but what's great about the movies, they also make her very feminist. First of all, it's hard to make Gal Gadot not feminine because she's gorgeous. But beyond that, they actually make the character herself very feminine. Like, there's a very funny bit where she's walking through London. This, it takes place during World War One, where she's walking through London. This is not a big giveaway or anything. She was walking through London, and there are no babies where she comes from because it's an island of all women. And so she's walking through London, she sees a baby, and she sort of veers off path to go look at the baby. <laughs> and it's really cute. Uh, the, the, but she's also super kick-ass, right? Uh, there are some scenes, it's actually quite, there's some parts of this that are really quite moving. Uh, I don't want to give any spoilers. I have a lot of deep thoughts about what they should have done with Wonder Woman, uh, particularly the end of the film, the last 15 minutes of the film or so. I have some interesting thoughts about that because they made the main villain of the piece a guy named Eric Ludendorff. Eric Ludendorff was an actual historical character who was a main general. He's one of the two main generals in the German army. Uh, was a total war guy. Uh, was really brutal. Ended up after the war becoming a big supporter of Hitler. Was actually behind Hitler at the Beer Hall Putsch. Um, so I don't want to spoil what happens in the movie with regard to this character, but all I will say is I feel like they should have done more with him. Um, but the, the stuff with her and the stuff with Chris Pine is really good. Chris Pine is a very good actor, uh, and their, their chemistry really works on screen. She's surprisingly good. I mean, she's a model, but she actually can act, which is shocking. Uh, and the script is, is pretty good as well. 
Really enjoyed it. I think it's worthwhile seeing. Um, there's some sexual innuendo, some pretty heavy sexual innuendo about a third of the way through the film, so it's not for kids who are like 10, probably. Um, but, you know, for teenagers, it's fine. You're not going to... I don't think it's anything super-duper over the top. They don't show anything. It's kind of a couple of references, but uh, the the film is is... Really, first rate. I mean, it's getting really good reviews, and it should be getting good reviews. Um, yeah, again, I'm DC-centric, so I, I also like Batman v Superman and thought that the critics got that one entirely wrong. But uh, the film is really good. I don't even think we'll bother showing the trailer because people have seen the trailer, so we'll just skip the trailer. But you see the graphic, Wonder Woman. It's going to make $100 million at the box office uh, this weekend. It should. It's, it's a really good film. Again, DC is better than Marvel because it actually has some weight to it. You watch the film, you get to the end, and you actually are thinking about it a little bit because it actually has some... It's, it's a little heavy. It's a little heavy. It's not, it's not a light... I mean, it's taking place during World War I, so it takes its, its subject pretty seriously. Okay, uh, time for some... Uh, okay, wait, you know, before I do that, other things that I like, Hillary Clinton is now blaming everything under the sun for her own loss, and it's really, really, really funny. So Hillary lost because Hillary is terrible at everything and was a really bad candidate who no one likes, including her husband. According to Hillary Clinton, though... The odds were stacked against her. The world is lined up to get her. Here's Hillary Clinton blaming everyone under the sun. I get the nomination. So I'm now the nominee of the Democratic Party. I inherit nothing from the Democratic Party. What do you mean nothing? I mean, it was bankrupt. It was on the verge of insolvency. Its data was mediocre to poor, non-existent, wrong. I had to inject money into it. This is the DNC. The, the DNC to keep it going. That the Russians ran an extensive information war campaign against my campaign to influence voters in the election. They did it through paid advertising, we think. They did it through uh, false news sites. They did it through these thousand agents. They did it through machine learning, which you know kept spewing out this stuff over and over again the algorithms that they developed now. So that was the conclusion. And I think it's fair to ask, how did that actually influence the campaign? And how did they know what... Even the left has turned on her now because like, you're making excuses, excuses, excuses. Andrea Mitchell is basically, who loves Hillary Clinton, like adores Hillary Clinton, is saying, what a bunch of tripe. So here's Andrea Mitchell making fun of Hillary. Well, she, first of all, really drilled down on the fake news, the role of Infowars, and said that it was very clear to her that there were Americans directing and colluding, uh, conspiring, really, with the Russian hackers, with Guccifer, with the others who were involved in the hacking, in the dropping of WikiLeaks only an hour after the Access Hollywood uh, tape was disclosed and saying that they were doing so with such political sophistication. She was basically pointing to the Trump campaign, saying that the dots are now being collect connected in the investigation. She mentioned, uh, the, she mentioned Jared Kushner, she mentioned Bannon and Kellyanne Conway in the context of the fact that the Mercers, the big fundraisers who uh, contribute to the campaign. Off all this stuff, and then she says there's not a lot of evidence to back any of this. Even the left has turned on Hillary now, which is sort of sad because I was hoping they would run her again in 2020 because that's probably the best solution for Republicans. Okay, we'll do a very quick things I hate, and then we'll get to the mailbag. So the, the things I hate, we only do one thing I hate this week, although there are so many great things in the things I hate, right? 
I mean, like there's Whoopi Goldberg saying that contraceptive, that if you oppose nuns paying for contraception, you're like the Taliban. There's Shannon Sharp saying that being black is the hardest job in America, which is weird since Shannon Sharp is a millionaire. Uh, and uh, But the thing that I hate today is everybody going nuts over this trump Fifi thing. So I, I leave for two days and Trump um, tweets something out like, uh, we, uh, we, can all, uh, we can all see the negative Kofifi, C-O-V-F-E-F-E. And then he just left it like all night. <laughs> Because apparently he fell asleep by his Twitter. He just sort of keeled over in the middle of tweeting that. And the next morning, he tweeted, who can figure out the true meaning of Kofifi? Question mark, question mark, question mark. Enjoy. What? Weird. Okay. All right. So that's it. So... I have not yet figured out the true meaning of Kofifi, but to be honest with you, I haven't figured out the true meaning of the Trump presidency or anything that's gone on in politics for the last two years. In any case, um, the, the media, of course, ran with this. It, you know, they, they, they make mountains out of every molehill. So here, CNN asked the spelling champion to spell Kofifi on national TV this morning. Do you know the word Kofefe? Kofefe. Definition, please. Ah, the definition is um, a nonsense word. Made up by the 45th president of the United States in a late night tweet. <laughs> language of origin. Oh, language of origin. Gibberish. Gibberish. Part of speech. Part of speech. Uh, it's a noun. It could be a noun, but may you be used mm-hmm. in as, any way you'd a, like. as a verb and as an insult. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any alternate pronunciations? Yeah, just so goes on like this. They did a full segment on Kofefe. Okay, the media needs to like stop it. Uh, it. It does underscore something, which is that the me- a lot of people got very angry at Trump for tweeting out Kofefe because it's just silly. It, you, the reality is, that if you understand who Trump is, it's actually kind of funny because Trump is kind of a dunderhead who maybe he's well intentioned or he's not well intentioned, but he's not like Phi Beta Kappa. And him tweeting out Kofefe, enjoy, is actually kind of hilarious. Okay, time for the mailbag. Um, Francine writes, Hi, Ben. We're having a hypothetical debate with our 17-year-old son and would love for you to weigh in. Should it be legal for adults to smoke in a home where children under 18 are present, knowing that the secondhand smoke presents a risk to the children? The debate is about the limits of when the government should get involved to protect the rights of someone who can't protect themselves, i.e. a minor. So, to be honest with you, I don't know enough about the science of secondhand smoke to give you an answer to that. I don't know whether the science is more like heightens risk, but it's not super heightening the risk, and it's more like feeding your kids unhealthy food. The problem that I have is once you start saying that you're going to take kids out of the home because something could be unhealthy for the kids uh, based on just basic health reasons, unless you're actually beating the kid, uh, then you could say, okay, you feed your kids french fries too often, obesity leads to heart disease, your kid's going to die, we're taking your kid out of the home. So I think you have to be very careful about these sorts of labels. But again, I don't have enough evidence. If you could show me that, you know, the, that the risk of lung cancer is the same for a secondhand smoke, uh, for secondhand smoking uh, for a child as it is for a person who smokes cigarettes their whole life, then uh, it's something worth considering and talking about. Nicholas says, what's your opinion on the comparisons made between radical Islam and the Japanese during World War II? Uh, well, there are a couple of problems with the comparison. Uh, I think that the comparison is right in a couple areas and wrong in a couple areas. One area that it's right is obviously the Japanese during World War II were fighting for a theocratic state that was centralized along tyrannical lines. Uh, Radical Islam is doing the same. The biggest problem is that it was easier to fight Japan because it was a state actor. Radical Islam spreads across boundaries. It infuses societies where that that are owned by the West. Uh, It infuses more moderate Islamic communities, and so it's much harder to root out the Japanese government was was fighting a war with us, much easier to fight a war with the government than it is to fight a war with an amorphous movement. And again, we can't even, it's hard to identify who exactly is a radical jihadist and who is not because 
there are a bunch of um, there are a bunch of different gradations of this. There are people who identify as reformers who aren't. There are people who identify as moderates who are actually in league with the Muslim Brotherhood, and then there are people who are open jihadists. Uh, and uh, I'm reading a book right now by Bernard Lewis, The Crisis of Islam, which I'll probably use as a thing I like next week, uh, that, in which he talks about these sort of gradations. Ferrari, what topics should you talk about on a first date? Uh, so on a first date, you should talk about uh, what you want to do with your life. You should talk about what you want to do for a job. You should talk about values. You should talk about what are the things that you want to bring your kids up like. Because for me, dating is not just about getting along with someone. I get along with lots of people, believe it or not. But... Uh, but I, but dating for me is about the concept of marriage, right? If you're dating for marriage, then you better set the groundwork fast. And why exactly would you waste time just seeing like chemistry either happens or it doesn't. And guys can tell chemistry and girls can tell chemistry within the first seven, eight minutes of a meeting. Like you've never been with somebody. It's very rare that you're with somebody where you're like, God, I have no chemistry with this person. Then half an hour later, you're like, ah, oh, the chemistry is fantastic. It doesn't happen. Chemistry is the easiest thing to identify. The hardest thing to identify is commonality of values. And if you ignore commonality of values, you're unlikely to have a good relationship. You should cut it off at the beginning before people get emotionally attached or involved because it's a huge mistake not to concentrate on the deep issues before you get to the shallow ones. It's, it's really kind of dumb. Jason says, I'm recently grieving over the loss of a beloved pet. What does your faith say about pets in the afterlife? So Judaism does not have any notion of pets in the afterlife so far as I am aware, because that is one of the distinctions between animals and human beings, that human beings uh, have a soul and animals do not. So animals have a life force, but they don't have a soul, according to Judaism. Uh, I know that's not a popular answer, but that is the answer in traditional Judaism. Uh, Garrett says, Dear Ben, I recently visited the movie theaters and was curious if you could answer a debate question me and my sister had over a Spanish trailer that was presented before an English film. Is it racist to believe it would be more unifying for the country and there'd be less separation between cultures if we all spoke the same language? My sister told me I was racist and wrong for saying I was confused and thought it was silly to put a separate language before an English film. And it's not racist to say that you would like for everybody to speak the same language so we can have conversations together. That said, I think that we should all learn other languages so that we can spread the messages of liberty and, and values in other languages. It's one of the reasons I've been struggling to learn Spanish for the last two years unsuccessfully. And I think that it's important that we reach out beyond, you know, quote-unquote target demographics and we, and we try to translate our message into as many languages as possible. Daniel said... Ben, I told my wife facts don't care about my facts don't care about your feelings. She then looked at me in a way that made me fear for my life. Any advice? I may or may not have said it in response to her saying I'm feeling fat. <laughs> well, get a comfortable couch, dude. Uh, I mean, it, 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 unfortunately, facts don't care about your feelings is true. The fact of her feelings also does not care about your feelings, so that, that is the downside. Emily says, Dear Ben, do you think a widow or widower is morally obligated to try and find another spouse in order to help raise their children? Uh, P.S. I'm writing this on my birthday. Uh, not sure the correlation, but happy birthday. Um, and uh, as far as uh, morally obligated to try and find another spouse to help raise their children, no, I don't think you're morally obligated to do that. I think it seems like a, it could be a nice thing to do, but I don't think you're morally obligated to do that. Okay, final question. Uh, Jordan says, Dear Ben, the left always claims to be the party of science, but constantly pushes the narrative that men can become women, and of course that a fetus is not a human life. As a biochem major, I know these two claims are resoundingly false. How does the left push these two narratives while maintaining their pro-science image? By yelling a lot. That's really what it is, by yelling a lot and then falsifying the science. So what they say about fetus, is, uh, that a fetus is not a human life, is they draw false distinctions, they try to prevent people from seeing ultrasounds, they hide and obscure the science. 
about men becoming women, they will just say that it's a sociological construct without any sort of evidence to back that up. They will ignore the current science. And then they will suggest that there is science that suggests that men can become women and women can become men because there are some vague brain scan studies that are self-selected. Um, no. So they, they do it basically by shouting. And then, and then what they really are doing is they're picking on the idea that a lot of people who are in favor of pro-life positions and in favor of the idea that men and women are different are religious people. And so they, by nature, use the argument that if you're religious, you must be anti-science, which, of course, is utterly, utterly untrue. You need to make a good scientific argument for why you're pro-science, not just impugn the other guy as a religious bigot based on no science at all. Okay, so we've reached the end of the week. By the way, big announcement. Next week, starting next week, we are going five days a week. So we will have a Friday show as well. So your life has become one-fifth richer. So congratulations to you. We'll see you back here on Monday. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second first. Pure Talk believes in American values, and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick-charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving. 